Welcome to the Homeopathy for Mommies radio show. Your host, Sue Meyer, is a Catholic wife and homeschool mom of 11. She shares her knowledge of the study of natural alternative medicine with you. While this show is not intended to diagnose or name any disease, through her experience, Sue will share helpful information to help you further your study into the amazing world of homeopathy. And now, here's your host, Sue Meyer. Welcome to Homeopathy for Mommies. I'm Sue Meyer. Today we are going to talk about a subject that's very near and dear to my heart. It's called sepsis. All right. And the reason I'm talking about this is because I want everyone, I mean the whole world, to know how well homeopathy and natural remedies help when a person has sepsis. I have been, oh my goodness, I get so upset when people will call me and they'll say, oh, so-and-so was just rushed to the hospital. She has peripheral sepsis. They took her to the hospital after the baby's born. She had developed sepsis and now she's on antibiotics. Oh my gosh, guess what's going to happen? That little baby is going to have the roughest start because now all his good bacteria is going to be totally overthrown by all of the antibiotics. So he's going to have a rough start. He's going to have even candida that could become systemic throughout his entire life, his or her, especially for girls. But the point is, is this happens a lot. And if everyone knew how homeopathy could help with sepsis, then they would have recourse to those antibiotics, all right? And yes, it's very, very scary that a person could, does or can get sepsis. And it is, it's like I said, it's life-threatening. The doctors will make you think that there is no other recourse other than antibiotics because antibiotics are what save people from sepsis. And what exactly is sepsis? Well, the thing is, is I am going to actually just read to you from Wikipedia what sepsis is. Sepsis is a life-threatening condition that arises when the body's response to infection causes injury to its tissues and organs. Common signs and symptoms include fever, increased heart rate, increased breathing rate, and confusion. So in other words, we're dealing with infection here, okay? Sepsis is just simply infection of the, once it's hit the bloodstream. Once it's hit the bloodstream, it can go and land in any organ or any system of the body. And so when we talk about sepsis, it's not just a generic term. It, I mean, it's a generic term for infection of some organ or system. There may also be symptoms related to a specific infection, such as a cough with pneumonia or painful urination with a kidney infection. The very young, old, and people with a weakened immune system may have no symptoms of a specific infection, but the body temperature and, and the body temperature can be low or normal instead of having a high fever. Simply because, like I said, if their immune system is compromised, their vitality is not strong enough to run a high fever, but they can still have sepsis, okay? Severe sepsis is sepsis causing poor organ function or blood flow. The presence of low blood pressure, high blood lactate, or low urine output may suggest poor blood flow. Septic shock is low blood pressure due to sepsis that does not improve after fluid replacement. Sepsis is an inflammatory immune response triggered by an infection. Bacterial infections are the most common cause, but fungal, Viral and protozoan, in other words, bacterial infections, can also lead to sepsis. Common locations for the primary infection include the lungs, 
brain, kidney, urinary tract, skin, and abdominal organs. Risk factors include being very young, older, or from having a weakened immune system. Conditions, also those containing conditions such as cancer or diabetes, major trauma or burns. Previously, a sepsis diagnosis required the presence of at least two systemic inflammatory response syndrome criteria in the setting of presumed infection. In 2016, a shortened sequential organ failure assessment score, known as the quick SOFA score, replaced the original system of diagnosis, that original system which was having the presence of at least two systemic inflammatory response syndrome systems. Okay, so now to be diagnosed with sepsis, there has to be at least two of the following three symptoms. One, increased breathing rate, change in the level of consciousness, and low blood pressure. Sepsis guidelines recommend obtaining blood cultures before starting antibiotics. This is, you have to remember, this is the allopathic way of taking care of it. So if you go in and you have one of two of the following three, One, increased breathing rate. Two, change in the level of consciousness. Three, low blood pressure. So if you have two of those, then you can be classed as having sepsis. And then they want you, they want to do a culture before putting you on antibiotics so they know what they're fighting, you know, so they know what they're fighting and then which antibiotic best is used to take care of your issues. However, the diagnosis does not require the blood to be infected. All right. Now, that is not what I have been brought to understand as sepsis, but this is their new criteria. So if you have two of those three symptoms, they can class you as having sepsis. Medical imaging is helpful when looking for possible location of the infection. Uh, I know the thermography is, is amazing because it just will show up wherever there's infection very, very quickly, very easily. Another potential, other potential causes of similar signs and symptoms include anaphylaxis, adrenal insufficiency, low blood volume, heart failure, and pulmonary embolism. Sepsis requires immediate treatment with intravenous fluids and and antimicrobiotics, okay? Ongoing care often continues in an intensive care unit. If an adequate trial of fluid replacement is not enough to maintain blood pressure, then the use of medications that raise blood pressure become necessary. Now, mind you, I'm just telling you this because I want you to know what the allopathic world considers to be sepsis. Mechanical ventilation and dialysis may be needed to support the function of the lungs and kidneys, respectively. A central venous catheter and an arterial catheter may be placed for access to the bloodstream to guide treatment. Other helpful measurements include cardiac output and superior vena cava oxygen saturation. So they check your oxygen levels and they check your heart and they they catheterize anything that needs to be catheterized. People with sepsis need preventative measures for deep vein thrombosis, stress ulcers, and pressure ulcers unless other conditions prevent such interventions. Some might benefit from tight control of blood sugar levels with insulin, the use of Cardiac steroids is controversial with some reviews finding benefit, others not. So in other words, they don't know for sure exactly how you're going to respond, but they're going to try anything. Disease severity partly determines the outcome. The risk of death from sepsis is as high as 30% and as high as 50% from severe sepsis and up to 80% from septic shock. Sepsis affected about 49 million people in 2017 with 11 million deaths. Okay, so one in five deaths worldwide. Kind of interesting, being as we're talking about this and coronavirus, you never hear about deaths from from shock or some sepsis, but 
11 million deaths in 2017 from sepsis. Even though they, they know what causes it, they, they can determine very quickly with medical testing where the sepsis is at, where the infection is, and then they have all at, their, at the tips of their fingers all of these different allopathic treatments. Okay, so that's a lot. When you consider that 49 million people had sepsis in 2017, and of those 49 million people, 11 million still died. Okay, it's pretty amazing. So in other words, their allopathic treatment is not very successful, is it? You still have about one-fifth of all persons that get sepsis end up dying with the use of allopathic medicine. In the developed world, approximately 0.2 to 3 people over 1,000 are affected by sepsis yearly, resulting in about a million cases per year in the United States. Rates of disease have been increasing. Amazing. Is this not amazing, folks? If the rates of disease are increasing and we have access to all these allopathic drugs and all these allopathic treatments and all these wonderful tests, they can tell us immediately what's wrong with us, but they can't fix us. Sepsis is more common among males than females. Descriptions of sepsis date back to the time of Hippocrates. All disease dates back to the time of Hippocrates. The terms septicemia and blood poisoning have been used in various ways and are no longer recommended. So when I talk about septicemia or blood poisoning, I am talking about sepsis. And But now even in Wikipedia, I'm, I, I see I can use Wikipedia because it's, I can quote or copy anything I want off Wikipedia because it's, it's free to the public. But what I find interesting, and I keep telling you folks, this is why everybody should have a 1940, like a 1950 or earlier medical dictionary. I use the Gould's medical, Gould's medical dictionary, like the 1945, because that's before they started really changing medical terms. We still have all the medical terms that we have today, except they're in their original format. And so sepsis is the, what we used to call septicemia or blood poisoning. So with that, you understand how these diseases, what happens, okay? So literally anytime someone has an infection, at any given time, if the body is unable to basically encapsulate it, throw it into the form of a boil or um, a, an encapsulated, infected area of the body, if that can leak into the blood or into an organ system, then it's harder for the body to contain it. And so then we end up with a septic or sepsis situation. So most persons with a healthy immune system, that if they haven't been compromised, even if they get a severe injury or they, they end up like, I had meningitis one time because I stabbed myself in the eyeball with my mascara tube. I know, don't, you gotta be really careful folks. Because <laughs> meningitis, bacterial, inf- bacterial organisms can get into the body through an open wound or orifice. So like if you get a puncture wound, oddly enough, you can get, you know, tetanus or any other type of bacterial infection because it enters the body. That's why infants, even having their umbilical cut in the hospital, they can get meningitis because it can enter through that, that injury, that wound. Kids who end up, they get, uh, like their vaccines, they get shots. They can get bacteria into their body through that. Just any kind of injury or wound, we can get bacterial infections. But they, bacteria has to enter through an unnatural injury or wound. Or like if you get injured outside, they step on a nail, they, they get a cut on their bike, they climb a tree, and they get a really bad scratch. 
that can get infected because it's, it's opened the body and it's vulnerable to any sort of infection or any sort of bacteria entering through that wound. That's why we clean wounds very, very thoroughly and very quickly. We don't wait three hours before we clean up a wound. We do it immediately. And like I said, I always like to soak any body part if there's an injury or a wound, especially if it's a puncture wound or a laceration. I like to quickly soak it. And if it's too open to be soaked, because like if you go to the doctor's office and they want to, they have to stitch you up. They'll say, don't soak this because it, it could, you know, it could dissolve the stitches or whatever, or it's bleeding too much. They don't want you to start drawing that blood to the surface. But at the same time, if that wound hasn't been cleaned and cleansed properly, you can get infection under that. That's why even skin injuries that where the skin has been laid back and there's gravel and dirt in there, it's almost impossible to get that super, super clean. You're almost better off to just take and cut that skin off and let everything regrow from underneath. Because once you lay that skin that's been ripped open and you lay it back over, you're basically encapsulating any bacteria in there. And so they can, they use, they can use um, things like lavender. Pure lavender is amazing for killing bacteria. Um, they like to use betadine, which is basically an... Um, iodine that has other ingredients added to it so it's not because that does cure bacteria as well iodine is amazing colloidal silver is amazing and these are things that aren't going to work to suppress so much as just to kill that bacteria but if you have if you stitch something up you haven't got all the gravel out of there or all the bacteria then it's going to the body will end up encapsulating that we did that one time my husband he had cut, he had fallen into, he was carrying stuff out from work and he had fallen into the dumpster because that was really icy. And because he couldn't grab himself, grab, you know, hold himself up, he fell into the dumpster because he had this arm full of stuff that they were throwing out there. And he cut his eye really bad and it bled. Well, head wounds tend to bleed really, really bad. We got home and because it had bled so effectively, we just put a couple drops of lavender on and we didn't stitch him up. I wanted to, but (laughs) we used those that butterfly bandage, and he healed up really, really well. Well, a few months later, I realized, I said, honey, look, he's got that tiny little nodule in there. What happened is the body, because it was healthy, there must have been some bacteria left in there, so it encapsulated that, and it's basically going to be there forever unless we have it cut out. But that's, some, that's what the body does when it's healthy. It will encapsulate a, um, a bacteria or an invader, and then it'll safely tuck it away. Just, Just... To keep it at bay, it's it's benign. There's, you know, it's not gonna. The body's not gonna say, "Okay, let's come back again," unless something happens. But otherwise, it's just gonna be this little benign little bump, this little nodule now that it, the body's encapsulated. And that's that's a healthy body, and the way a healthy body deals with invading bacteria. Or you can have. I know the thing is in here is you can infection. Once it gets into the body, the body has to decide how it's gonna deal with it. So. I know one of the big things is, and this is probably too much information for a podcast, but women can get toxic shock syndrome from the use of monthly items. I'm not going to, I don't want to describe that in too much detail, but if they haven't been changed properly or if they're um, used too long, different situations like that, then that flow hasn't been allowed to move and then become stagnant and then you can get bacterial infection and that can lead to toxic shock syndrome, which is a direct route to the bloodstream. And we have viruses, viruses that 
um, can turn into, you know, pneumonia. If, if we've suppressed anything and the body isn't allowed to work the way it's supposed to work or someone who ends up with a really bad cold and they just keep working, 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 they don't take care of themselves and rest, they can end up with a secondary infection. That infection can end up and turning septic down the road. Like I said, that's a, that would be a really severe condition that someone gets a virus and then it turns septic because that would mean they're seriously not taking care of themselves. But the point is, is we can get sepsis from any type of situation. Any, like I said, you know, it can affect any organ or organ system. It can go directly into the bloodstream where it affects the entire body. Anyone that's healthy is gonna have that really high fever. The blood pressure is going to go lower because the body is fighting so hard to get rid of the infection that it's got. And so you have these symptoms. So what do we do about it? First of all, if you have, you listen to all my different podcasts and everybody's like, oh, you know, what do we do, Sue? What do we do? We get so sick. The first thing is to stay hydrated. All right. You don't need food when you're really, really sick. You stay hydrated. You drink broth, good, healthy bone broth. Give the body what it needs just to fight what's going on inside. Never, ever give fever suppressants because that the fever is the body's natural way to get rid of the infection. You want to control the fever in the sense that you want to let it, let the body fight. Try to keep it down to a point where it's not going to start burning up brain cells. So that's where we use the pickle socks. And the pickle socks, again, you just use pickle juice. I like kosher with the garlic in it. You just wet the white cotton socks with this pickle juice, wring it out just enough so that it's not drippy, drippy, drippy. Put it on the bottoms of the feet of the person with the high fever. And then you cover that white cotton socks with real wool socks. Real 100% wool are almost impossible to find now, but you can at least find 80% wool. What you're looking for is wool has wicking action. So it will pull that it, it will pull the heat through that white cotton garlicky pickle juice out of the body. And you keep checking those white cotton socks because if the fever is 104 or higher, those white socks are going to dry out very quickly. So you check them, re-dip them, put them back on, and the like I said, the, cot, the wool socks tend to pull the heat from the body naturally without suppressing the fever. The, the fever, the body can still generate that heat and it can still fight naturally, but it's not going to affect, like I said, the brain cells, right? Uh, and so it doesn't suppress. So you can use that form of pulling the heat from the body. The other thing to remember is that, like I said, you don't have to worry about feeding a person food when they're fighting a septicemia or blood poisoning or anything like that, just simply because the digestive system shuts down anyway. When it's fighting a disease or infection, it shuts down the digestive system so that it can do what it needs to do to get over what it's dealing with. However, you do have to stay hydrated. So in other words, as the body's sweating and working and fighting, it's using up a lot of, a lot of moisture, a lot of fluid. So if it's an adult you're dealing with, one to three tablespoons of water or liquid per hour. If it's a child, one to two or three teaspoons per hour will keep a person from being dehydrated, even if they're sweating, all right? Usually they don't have, urinate a lot when they're fight, having a high fever. The fact is they can, you'll notice that they're getting dehydrated if their urine becomes really dark and smelly when they do have to go. So just make sure they're getting that fluid. You can check their eyes. If their eyes start sinking in, that's a sign that they could be getting dehydrated, especially underneath. Um, check their skin. Look at the fleshy part of their skin. And you, just, you can just use your finger and in, 
press on the off the forearm, the fleshy part of the forearm. If it stays indented, that's a sign that they could be getting dehydrated. If it bounces back, they're fine. They're hydrated and you know they're not in critical condition. If you ever suspect that someone is hydrated because they have the sunken eyes or their skin is staying indented when you press on it, you might want to call your homeopath or your local doctor. We always have a doctor that, um, we have a couple of different doctors that we work with that aren't mainstream, that they can, um, like the midwives work with a doctor, um, you know, we have, have good communications with a good midwife in your area or a doctor that isn't, I shouldn't say in the system because I think they're all in the system to a certain extent, but there are some who will be of more help than others because they're not like so ready to, you know, rush you to the hospital. Anyway, so we have good relations with um, doctors and midwives in our area and our family so that we can, you know, we have someone to talk to in times of emergency. But just remember that when the body is fighting and you have an infection like this, there's something in the body that has to be gotten out. So is it a strep or is it staph? Is it a meningitis? Is it a bacteria that's come in from out of the body? Or is it something the body was exposed to and now it's gone secondary? We don't always know. And that is the scary factor. And people say, I don't know what's wrong. I don't know what's wrong. So even though you don't know what's wrong, you still just follow these simple rules of taking care of the body when it's ill and just knowing what to do, just knowing the pickle socks and just knowing that you can keep a body hydrated takes a huge amount of fear away from you. And if you know what to look for, it takes a huge amount of fear away from you if you're the caregiver. Now, of course, if you don't know what you're fighting, you know, use belladonna or stramonium. We just talked about stramonium in a podcast recently. And that is the, it's like belladonna, but it the fever can be more intermittent. It can go be really, really high, and then it can go away and it can come back and go away and come back. Usually when someone has actual blood poisoning or septicemia or sepsis, the fever doesn't usually go away. It just stays high. Or like we read here in some, some situations, the fever can be non-existent and they can just have a, a like a, a rash. Because what's happened is it's an abertonum type situation. They had strep or they had something going on, they got over it and now they end up with this rash, meaning there's still that infection within their system. So we need to get rid of that. And we need just to help the body get rid of it naturally. We're not gonna do anything, but it's okay to use homeopathic remedies to help their body deal with the infection that's going on. So understanding all of that really helps us to get a better idea of how, you know, what to do and how to handle it. I've thrown a few pictures in here. If you're a part of our members group, then you, you'll see our printout here. And I've thrown some pictures in here of persons with what they call sepsis. And sepsis can, you can see it externally sometimes in the form of a rash, a swelling. Sometimes you can see a streak going up their arm or their leg, up their fingers. You can see just simply a rash that will show up. I know there's been a lot of talk on um, our members forum lately of like what they call a whitlow or just infection like a hangnail type infection and it just doesn't want to go away and it wasn't necessarily it could have been clipped by a a, uh, a nail clipper or or not but they can get infection just on a, in, on, a, on the tips of their finger most often that is a strep type infection so you know, we use the same protocol, even though it's, it's not a streak going up the arm or it's not a high fever, but it's extremely sore, aggravating and, and 
we can't get rid of it. It just doesn't want to go away or they keep recurring. So we're going to address that as like a, a, stat, a strep infection. And so the thing is, is like any type of infection within the body, I pretty much use the same type of remedies. I've listed here for blood, septicemia, blood poisoning, pyemia. And pyemia is, the definition of pyemia is just simply a type of sepsis that leads to widespread abscesses of a metastatic nature. Now, we talked about metastasis in one of our recent podcasts, uh, Abrotanum. And because what happens is anything that's metastatic simply means that it's changing. It's either moving from one part of the body to another, or it's changing symptoms. Okay, so that's metastatic. It's moving, it's changing. So pyemia is a sepsis that leads to widespread abscess or of a metastatic nature. It is usually caused by the staphylococcus bacteria by pus forming organisms in the blood. Apart from the distinctive abscesses, pyemia exhibits the same symptoms as other forms of septicemia. It was almost universally fatal before the introduction of antibiotics. Okay, so they introduce antibiotics, but those people who were passing away from sepsis prior to antibiotics didn't know about homeopathy, guys, <laughs> okay? Because homeopathy is so effective. It's effective in the sense that you take up a body who was healthy prior to getting this infection, and then when they use homeopathy, it triggers the body to heal itself. It, it helps to organize the healing process of the body. And that's why I love homeopathy, because like I said, as we evolve as you know the human race, and we've been using allopathic medicine now for a really long time, how many generations now it hasn't taken long and our bodies are confused. They don't even seem to know how to heal from a simple illness anymore. So it's going to take that many generations to get back our organization of the healing process. And now, like I said, with homeopathy, it's really helping us to get back into our, the ability to heal from this type of situation. So with pyemia, um, and I will say too, that's like active strep infection. I use streptococcinum. So like if I'm fighting someone that with, I suspect has strep throat or if they have that odor coming from their breath when they breathe, I have what I call the infection protocol. And if you're a member, I don't even know, probably have it on a regular mommy's um, website as well. But the infection protocol, it just has remedies in there that really help to figure out how to treat an infection, whether it's staph or strep or whether it's a dental infection. It, it has the basic infection remedies that I like to use. And I have rarely, I, I, you know, honestly, I think I've, I've, I've never really had it fail, maybe once or twice. And then again, I don't know, was that person's remedies canceled by something and they weren't working? Or, you know, I don't know all the extenuating circumstances, but I've literally never used this combination of remedies and had it fail. And it goes from everything from meningitis type symptoms to strep throat to other infections within the body. It's, it's very, very amazing. But what I use is, um, well, well, first of all, before I tell you about that, what I've done here is I've taken and I've pulled the rubric, like blood septicemia, blood poisoning, pyemia, and there are over 100 remedies listed that are excellent remedies for blood poisoning or septicemia. And it starts with abrotanum, and it have aconite. We have everything, ammonium carbonicum and anthrax. We have carboveg, crotalus, echinacea, Caliiodatum, lachesis or lachesis, pyrogenium. We have tarantula, 
um, Tucrium, Veratrum, and the list goes on. There are so many remedies that can be used if that be, you know, the most called for similum of the person's illness. And so if you have someone that's really, really ill, you can contact a homeopath or you can rubric out all their symptoms and you can come up with the best possible remedy for their illness, for their sepsis. Very often we tend to panic. And that's the only reason I put together a little infection protocol, not because these, any of these remedies won't do the trick if that's their simulum. But when we're in a panic and we're scared because it's such a frightful type of situation, it's nice to have the infection protocol. We also have um, blood poisoning, pyemia, and brain complaints. And for that, again, we, taught, we use the remedies belladonna or stramonium or hyoscyamus, which again is a cousin of the Solanche family of remedies, hydrocyanic acid and muriatic acid. Those are the remedies you're most likely to reach for during septicemia or sepsis when there's brain complaints. Um, and then for women who develop sep sepsis after paturation, we have a handful of remedies. I'll name them here, and I've listed them on this paperwork. Arnica, arsenicum, belladonna, carbolic acid, echinacea, calicarb, lachesis, lycopodium, opium, phosphorus, pulsatilla, pyrogenium, rustox, secal, and sulfur. So we have different situations. We can at least pinpoint the part of the brain or where we think it might be coming from as best we can. We look at the remedy picture, we look at the simulum, and we pick the best possible remedy. The one thing that you'll notice here is, uh, is the pyrogenium. It's very bold. Pyrogenium is probably the most used remedy for, septis for sepsis or septicemia that we can use. Gunpowder was very effective back in the day, but I think today we have more complicated infections simply because of the the use of antibiotics and the use of other suppressants for the last three generations. But we have, um, and that when I use pyrogenium, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's, pyrogenium is made from rotten meat. And like I said, it has an amazing effect on any sort of infection. So like I said, I have, um, I always use belladonna or stramonium for intensely high fever when, whenever anyone gets sick. And sometimes that's just enough along with the pickle socks to pull them out of it. And you don't have to go into a whole big infection protocol. Um, I have used anthraxinum for infections where the wound has a black center. So it can be a puncture wound, it can be an injury, but when the center of the wound turns black, I always use anthraxinum along with the infection protocol to try and get it out of the system because that that is an indication that you could be dealing with anthrax. And everybody's like, what? We had the big anthrax scare back in the 80s. Anthrax is actually, it's, it's common in barnyards, especially where there's been sheep. And it's, it's common in many, many different places. And most of us it can, be a, can be exposed to it and we don't have a problem. But when there's a weakness or there's a trauma that the person, even, like I had a young lady who had an injury very healthy young lady, but because of the shock of the injury, I think she succumbed to that type of infection, the anthraxinum, and the, her wound turned black. But she didn't tell me about it until later. And so we used that with great success. But I will say that her body from time to time still, she says that that injury site will actually ache. And I told her, I says, whenever it aches like that, take the anthraxinum again. And just to wake up the body system to, that it knows what it is fighting. 
Um, anytime that there's an oozing of, especially of a dark colored or black blood, we think of any of the snake remedies like Lachesis, Crotalus, or even Cedron, which is for a snake bite remedy, and especially when there's intermittent fever from a from a original original bite. But that oozing of black blood, or if it's an ulcer, because a lot of people can have an ulcer, like a wound on the outside of the skin that can just continue to deepen. And it can head in towards the, the bone or the inside of the body. And so when you have something like that, especially if it's a darker color, think of lachesis or crotalus. When the ulcer has gone into the bloodstream, again, lachesis, or even they talk about like the smallpox disease. The smallpox used to have these huge, open, bloody sores. So think of variolinum in a situation like that. So like I said, when I have someone that I suspect has sepsis, I always consider a nosode. Uh, like I said, if it's an active infection, high fever, I consider streptococcinum if it, or, or anthraxinum. If it's something that seems more latent and there's no high fever, but you suspect it was originally a staph or strep type situation, I will actually give them staphylococcinum because streptococcinum is more active and it tends to have the higher fever. But I always choose between hepersulf and mercurius for, to, to really fight the active infection. Hepersulf if the skin is dry, mercurius if the skin is moist. And then I like to add silica and I like a 6C potency um, in order to help the body get out of it what isn't supposed to be there. Whether it, you know, the, any of that infection floating out wherever it is, I like to use silica to wake up the body. Hey, get rid of it. And then of course, pyrogenium. And I use with great success pyrogenium in a 200C or 30C. And that again would be up to you. It's nice to have them both on hand. If it's a person in, more, in a weaker condition, use the 30C potency. If it's a small child or someone who you're just trying to get like, you know, a, something they have a pus on their finger or something like that, then you can use a higher potency. But like I said, the potency should touch more on the vitality of the patient. If, like I said, if you suspect they have a strong vitality, use a higher potency, lower vitality, use a lower potency. And like so, and that's what I do. And then I always use, I like to use a nosote as well to help the body understand what it's fighting. And you know, whether if it's pneumonia, use pneumonial coccinum or streptococcinum. You can touch the part of the body that's um, being affected. Like I said, pneumonia for, you know, pneumonial coccinum. I don't hesitate to use nosodes in that fashion because it is amazing the way the body will respond. It really, it, it's, it's like it just simply helps the body to organize its healing process. And so when I give these type of remedies, I give them an alteration. So like I'll give one half hour later, I'll give them the next one, half hour later, the next one, half hour later, the next one. And as they begin to heal, then I'll spread that out and I'll end up giving just one dose a day while they finish their healing process. It's amazing how the body just starts going in the right direction. And you'll know, people say, how many, how many times a day? Well, you can give one dose a one, you know, you can give three doses of each a day or four doses of each a day if they're in a severely critical situation. But as that situation becomes less critical, then the potencies, then the doses get further and further apart. And then when someone does have infection, I like to give all the remedies that I have been using to help them fight the infection. Even after they say, oh, I'm all better now. I don't need my remedies anymore. Give them the remedies, just one dose a day for three more days. 
because when someone has been extremely ill, they think they're better, even just because the fever's gone. You know, the infection might not be gone yet. They feel better, but just have them go for three more days taking the remedies to keep the healing going in the right direction because if that infection should come back, the whole symptom picture might change and they might not respond to the remedies as well the second time. So I just, like I said, I just like to keep them if it's an infection because I've had infections come back with a vengeance if that person hasn't stayed down, rested, had their chicken soup, their grape juice and mineral water, and gotten up and went back to work too quickly. The body needs time to rest. It, it cannot heal unless it's resting. I'm sorry, you know, it's just the fact of life. There's no quick pill to say, okay, you can go back to work now. And a lot of people think that, you know, just because they're feeling a little bit better, oh, I can do this now. No, you need to give the body time to heal. And so anyway, I just wanted to touch on septicemia, sepsis, blood poisoning, whatever it is we're calling it these days, and, and let you folks know that you have so, so many wonderful homeopathic remedies at your fingertips. And I tell folks, you know what, get these remedies on hand. Have them on hand so that you can handle a situation when it arises. And it's really difficult when you have to say, oh my gosh, I don't have that remedy. I'm, I need to order it. So by the time you order the remedy, you know, three days has gone by, it's critical, you know, or whatever. So just get these remedies on hand, even the most basic of remedies so that you have some recourse of action that you can take. And some, most of the time, if you just give hepersulf or mercurius or just pyrogenium, a lot of times that's enough to wake up the body's system to get rid of it. Now, like if I have someone who has a bladder infection or a kidney infection, and especially if it's recurrent, then I will give the E. coli nozode. And all of these, all the remedies I talk about are either in the, the homeopathy for mommies family type kit or the world's disease kit. And then if you've taken our world's disease, the course, you know, it's like 10 audios that tell you about all the world's diseases, how to deal with them, how to recognize them, what, what the origin is. It's such good information because it takes the fear out of disease. And we have to remember that disease is simply uh, due to original sin. Uh, we are predisposed to disease and eventual death, and we're going to have these diseases. But the thing is, is even though the names of these diseases are changing and they're constantly mutating and becoming part of something else, the original source is still the same. There's really no new diseases on the face of the planet since, you know, the fall of man, but they are altered slightly, but there's still that, that same semblance of the original disease. We've suppressed disease to the point where it's squeaking out into the form of something a little bit different, but it's still es essentially the same disease. So anyway, I just wanted to touch on this so everyone can understand that, yes, we can take care of this and we can get over this on our own. Don't wait till, you know, understand how to look for someone who's being dehydrated because that's, that's a critical situation. We cannot go into the dehydration mode. It's that at that point, it's really hard for the body to turn around. So, you know, watch for that and make sure they're getting their fluids, just small amounts. And, um, you'll be surprised what you can handle in your own home when you have the right homeopathic remedies and enough knowledge not to be super, super afraid. All right. With that, folks, I'm going to let you go. I thank you for listening, and I hope this has helped you and your family. May God bless you and yours. Thanks for listening to this episode of Homeopathy for Mommies radio show. Please visit Sue on her website, homeopathyformommies.com, and join us right here at homeopathyformommiesradio.com. 
Wednesday, noon Eastern. As always, we pray the Lord blesses you with good health, vitality, strength, and wisdom. 